Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, uh, any questions you may have, any comments, concerns, uh, anything really that you want to talk through, please come and find me after service is over or any one of the other elders as well. Uh, we're here for you, and so please uh, do not feel like you ever have to hold anything in. Uh, we are very thankful to have Katie Oda back after... Uh, after a time at Boyce College, and she has returned to serve with us as a part-time uh, children's ministry coordinator. Her first day of work officially was this past Friday, December 1st, and so I'm personally excited for her return, and I'm sure that many of you are as well. Uh, but she is part-time at this point, and so please uh, do not expect that she's going to take over every single one of Darcy's roles. I'm sure that uh, for most of us here, that didn't have to be said, but just in case, uh, her role is a different role, but a much needed one for our church at this time, and, and praise the Lord that he has provided people uh, to serve in various capacities with all of the transitions over this last year. And so we're excited to have you, Katie. And, and honestly, I, I just want to commend you, church, our, the volunteers, uh, always, but especially throughout these last several months. You guys have been so good to us. Uh, so many of you are serving in such substantial ways, uh, and that heart really does make our church what it is today. And so thank you all uh, for, so, uh, for giving so many of your hours and so much of yourself to the church. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 20 and verse 27 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 880 if you are using a church Bible. Page 880. Luke chapter 20 and verse 27. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and, and we ask that you would now make your word powerful in each of our lives, that, that its truth may be applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus Christ, uh, that he might be more and more everything to us. We ask these things in his name. Amen. One of the uh, most important questions we must answer uh, in our minds and in our hearts and in the way that we each choose to live our lives. One of the most important questions that we must each answer is, do you uh, really believe in life after death? Is there something waiting beyond the grave? Or, or is what we see uh, really all that there is? Now, many people do uh, live like this world is it, whether they have actually taken the time and sat down to think about it or not. They live for the most part like this life is it, with the mentality that you better make the most of it, and, and making the most of it can mean different things to different people. Whether he who dies with the most toys wins or the most experiences or, or maximizing the physical body's time period of health on earth or having a large group of friends or just a small intimate set that really loves you. Maybe it's setting up the next generation, our children, to succeed by doing the very same thing. I would say that the majority of people live like this world is what it is, and that this one life is all that you get in the sense that most of our attention uh, and the attention of our minds and our hearts is so focused almost entirely on the here and the now or the next 20 or 25 years may look like 30 to 40 if you're really future-minded, and not the next 1,000. But one of the most important questions we must answer is, do you really believe in life after death or not? 
We come to a text this morning where Jesus speaks about a foundational truth of Christianity concerning life after death, the resurrection, and the age to come, all of which is vital to understand, and all of this just a matter of days before Jesus himself will die upon the cross for the sins of his people and be resurrected for his life after his own death. Remember that this is his final week, and Jesus has been challenging it repeatedly about his authority. Uh, he has just most recently been confronted about politics and religion, and here it is that we find him being questioned about theology uh, in a very skeptical way. And with a mocking tone, the, the I can't understand how anyone can believe this stuff kind of tone about this very issue of life after death. And so we read in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In their resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. This is a horrible scenario. A woman dies, how? Death by seven husbands. I mean, at some point, you'd think that everyone would have quit when you start to notice a pattern that everyone I marry seems to die. And we have eight deaths and two sentences, and, and this is a ridiculous uh, picture by design, for here we find a mockery of the idea of life after death and a, and a cynical, hypothetical, and ridiculous question concerning the concept of a resurrection. But I think they mock it because they don't understand it. And I think they're cynical because they aren't actually interested in understanding it. We'll often come across people who conceptualize heaven or eternal life as just a longer version of this life because this is all we know, and so we want to project that onto the future. Or there will be others who describe heaven as a place of naked angel babies playing their harps while we lie up on the clouds. And even within the church, there may be people who dread the idea of heaven because they assume it's going to be this eternally long church service where we sing the same songs for the rest of time and that which will never end. And if that is heaven, because that's all the thought I've really put into it, and this is pretty much what my mind is willing to comprehend about it, then that idea is ridiculous and therefore who could ever believe in anything like that? It's not uncommon that people will deny the faith because of some misconstrued theological point uh, that really proves their ignorance in the very questioning of it. The Sadducees here, they want to undermine the truth of life after death by loading it up with difficulties and by creating the scenario that is so ridiculous and so perplexing where in the resurrection, a woman is literally looking at seven different husbands and not knowing which one she's supposed to live with in heaven. And therefore, because this scenario is so ridiculous, there can be no such thing as life after death. This is their argument, and in their minds, the case is closed. Now, they do use their Bibles here because even the most anti-Christian opponents of the faith will often use the Bible against the faith or try to. And the Sadducees, uh, they're religious. They revere the Pentateuch, Moses' writings, the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and there's a law in there that they're referring to which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6. And it says this, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. 
Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother for her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The design of the law here is to ensure that each family name in Israel would be perpetuated to the next generation by a son. And this would provide a pathway in which the land would remain within the same family and tribe throughout the generations. And also with this entire nation awaiting the Messiah, uh, careful genealogies and family trees, they were constantly being kept so that the tribes and families perpetuated could be traced as they longed for the promised one. Now, with a law like this in Mosaic legislation, the Sadducees derived that the most important thing is the next generation of life. The land is on earth, the status of the here, and now this is the main thing. The dead are dead. It is more of a concern for the baton to be passed to the next gen from the dead and not to dwell upon the existence of the last generation and because death does occur uh, frequently, procreation, again, is necessary for the human species to continue, and most importantly, for people like the Sadducees, the family line to continue. But we treat the dead as dead, which is why Moses writes this law, for the brother to help the dead one's line. Why? Because he's not coming back. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Current life on earth is a focus. Life after... Death is an afterthought at best, but really they are in complete denial of it. And this theology, this viewpoint, it really impact, impacts the way that they choose to live their lives in the present. You know, this uh, isn't uncommon. Paul faces this with the Greek intellectuals in Mars Hill in the book of Acts chapter 17. They scoff at the idea of the resurrection. Uh, we face the same thing today with a, with a more naturalistic worldview becoming prevalent that any idea of the supernatural is really viewed as being dated and expired and shouldn't be taken into account with any kind of seriousness. We're living in a time where uh, a more atheistic framework is, is, is welcomed and taught as fact, and supernaturalism is merely something that can help people cope, but not to be viewed as actual truth. And when that mentality is prevalent in the heart and in the mind, then the life produced by that will flow outward. And oftentimes we will shape our theology to suit our lifestyles. The Sadducees are a perfect example of this. To use a contemporary uh, 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 vocabulary, they are privileged. Their families are the ruling elite. Their priests hold the majority of the highest court in Jerusalem. They are wealthy. They are powerful. They are the upper class. I mean, the money changers in the temple that Jesus just threw out, that's a Sadducee operation. Then that's a wide revenue stream. Who gets to profit from this kind of religion? The Sadducees. They set it up. They do. One commentator describes the Sadducees as insular, heartless, material lists. And since there is no life after death in their minds, we must make the most of our time right now. And they form these political alliances with Rome to preserve their power and to expand it. Let's maximize the present. And so it's hardly a shock to find that this particular people group denies life after death because they have all the life they want now. They're thoroughly invested in the here. And there's nothing better for us to do than to live in this moment. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not just them. I mean, this can be especially prevalent uh, in areas like ours, Hawaii Kai, where people who are relatively wealthy, even if you don't feel that way, that we begin to life, uh, live life with more thought to today than we do to eternity. 
uh, our theology can be sculpted by the lifestyle we seek to justify. Again, this isn't foreign to us. This is the reason why the health, wealth, prosperity movement that is going strong today on the island and across the world is so attractive. The message that God can bless your life now materially and God can help you achieve your dreams and get you your ambitions and God can make you healthy and happy and whole. All of these terms primarily measured in finances, health, positive living, and positive thinking. I mean, if we want to steal a phrase, God can make you the best version of yourself. So dream big, so much so that no one really has to carry a cross and no one has to suffer and that all of our efforts are for the kingdom right in front of your face rather than in a better one, which is to come. You know, today people don't deny life after death so explicitly. They deny life after death by only focusing on this one and not the one after it. This is common and it's sadly true that we will often sculpt the theology we want to believe based upon the life we desire to live. Of course, the Sadducees deny the resurrection. Why? Because this world is their home. This is their oyster. And of course, people today that live for this life rather than the next one will twist the Bible to make it suit their own desires. And so we have here uh, in this question, this, this mockery of life after death, this cynical view uh, of the resurrection uh, coming ironically from people who claim to be religious and they mock it because they don't understand it. They're cynical because they actually aren't interested in understanding it. And in verse 34, we find that Jesus answers them and sheds a little bit of light on the nature of life after this one. We read, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are they given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The age to come is categorically different than the current age we experience today. Life after death is of another kind than life right now. And the new age is going to be far greater than this one. The Sadducees, their concept of life after death, again, is merely a longer life that is pretty much the same as this one, which is why their question about this poor widow in the resurrection with seven husbands in front of her, are they going to get an eight-bedroom house to share for all of eternity? Uh, Their concept of the age to come is so formed and fashioned after this one, and Jesus is telling them the difference between this age and the next age, it's incomparable. It's, It's the common experience of this life. You're born, you grow up, you you hit puberty, you mature, you argue with your siblings about who's growing faster than the other. You know, some uh, go off, some stay on an island, look for a spouse with the hopes of finding love and beginning your own family unit rather than being defined by your parents. And then the next generation, you rinse and you repeat, which makes total sense in a world of decay, cancer, death. It makes total sense in this passing world made perishable by sin and its effects. Jesus is saying the next age is not perishable. There is no sin nor the effects of it. We think of the next generation here because the current generation is always passing away. We are often thinking transition. In the new age, the current generation never dies. We don't think about passing the baton because there is no need to. 
And when Jesus says that we will be equal to the angels or like them, there is this sense that the angels who have enjoyed such close fellowship with God and who have never fallen but lived to honor him with no contaminating, no joy-stealing sin that could ever come between them, that humanity fallen as we once were, what you and I experience in daily life. In this new age, we are going to be like them in the sense, I think, that our highest joys will be realized in closeness to and in fellowship with and in worship of the God who designed and created us for himself. Now, marriage in particular, it, there's a fascination with it, and understandably so. For in it, whether we have secular views of it or not, in marriage, we are hoping to find the person to love with all of our hearts and who will love us in return. We are hoping to find this bond and this closeness that supersedes all other relationships. We want this because we are created for this kind of intimacy. And we desire, because God designed us as such, to give all of ourselves to this person and for this person to give all of themselves to us. It's this highest image of love so much that our bodies are being fitted together that we become united to one another. And we should celebrate marriage with all of our being. But listen to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The highest human relationship in this age found in marriage. It's really a, a pointer to something far greater than what can exist between a man and a woman. It's a pointer. It's a parable, John Piper says in his book, This Momentary Marriage. It's a parable and a pointer to something that is upcoming. What we enjoy on earth is a shadow. What we will enjoy in terms of a world of love in the next age is the substance of which the shadow points to. Let me try and illustrate this. You know, when our kids are younger, I think we only had two boys. Maybe uh, it was just one of them. I remember trying to explain Disneyland. And there's really no category for an amusement park to a child who hasn't ever been to one and, and who is just a handful of years old. And you can go online and pull out a map of it. And they, there might be some perception of it. But until you're there on Main Street, and you, hear this, you see the sights and the sounds and you see the perspective of that castle in the distance and you're walking through the strip with smiling people and music all around, uh, you can begin to see why the marketing pitch is Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. Now, if you're like me, the heat, the crowds, the cost, make it not even close to the happiest place on earth. But the principle is still there, description of it or not, even showing an explicit map of it to someone who hasn't been there, especially at a young age. All that map can do is point to the greater. All the shadow does is to illustrate the substance. But until you are there, you will only then understand the categorical difference. And even as we think of our own marriages, true, the heights are amazing. And at the same time, there are depths. I mean, who can hurt you more than the person you love most in the world? And, and how is it that even the person you do love most in the world, you can treat like you don't love them at all? And you can speak with anyone who has lost a spouse, and one of the highest joys of heaven to them, they will naturally think, is being reunited with that spouse. God has given them to enjoy during this short time on earth, and, and yet that's not even the main marriage in the new age. 
Christ's love for his bride, his church, his people. That's the substance. Everything else is just shadow that we will enjoy in fellowship and in relationship, a bliss that we can barely fathom because we're so riddled with sin in this age. But without contamination and without anything that steals away our joy, without any sin that can come between us in the new age, our highest elation will be realized in closeness to and in fellowship with and in worship of the God who designed and created us for himself, that we might know the fullness thereof, of what it means to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength in our mind, and to be fully capable of receiving all of the love that he has for us within himself, that we will truly find the bond and the union, the one fleshedness that supersedes all else, where we give all of ourselves to the one who gives all of himself to us. And the relationships there where people will truly love each other as we were designed to will come to fruition in a way Uh, that our best times on earth again are just a pointer of the ongoing reality of the new age. The question at the end of the day is, do you even believe it? Do we believe in the age to come? It's a very important question for us to ask ourselves because it will regulate the way that we live the rest of our lives upon this earth. And I think it is hard for us to internalize this. And I'm a, I'm a pretty nostalgic person. I like to drive down streets and contemplate the memories here and there. Sometimes I'll even look up stuff online from the 80s and the 90s and whatnot to relive uh, an era that I miss pretty dearly. And, and if you have an iPhone and you're like me, that, that phone targets the nostalgic bone in your body when it brings up memories and shows you pictures on this date, so-and-so years ago. And it's honestly this emotional exercise to look and remember and, and, and these little kids who are older now, and, and it's helpful, uh, it is, I think, to reflect on God's own goodness to each of us in the past. But it can also be uh, kind of dangerous and that we're tempted to think that our best days are behind us. And especially for those of us who have had to endure tragedy of this kind or that one, uh, it can be a, a dangerous exercise. Because the past can sometimes trap you when God has been good to you in it. That you can't imagine it ever being better than how it used to be. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, your best days are not behind. They're not. Your best days are yet ahead. And there are things we love about this age for sure. But use that to make you long for the next one. That's pointer. That's parable. That's shadow. Every relationship that you enjoyed on earth that you may miss right now, it's not less than the next age. It's more. And every pain you've endured, Christ himself will be close enough to wipe every tear from your eye. And our joy then will be more, not less than our highest joy year. And so I want to encourage you to look onward. And then we come to this phrase, Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. And there we realize this truth that this is not going to be for all of humanity. But the new age and the resurrection to this life we have just been talking about is only for those who are worthy. Now, what does that mean? It can't mean that you earn it. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't be in this last week of his life just moments away from hanging on a cross for our sin and not his own. 
If there's anyone who is worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, there really is only one who is worthy, and his name is Jesus. Then how is it that Jesus speaks of those who will be considered worthy? The only way is to have faith in the one who is worthy. We need a righteousness that is not of our own because we're not righteous. We need a worthiness that we cannot attain because we are unworthy. And because we are each unrighteous and unworthy of this glorious new age, our worthiness can only come from our union with Jesus. That somehow all that is his can become ours. His righteousness, uh, his holiness, his worthiness. And that he himself takes all that is ours upon him. Our sin, our, our shame. He takes all of that upon himself on the cross to be our substitute. I mean, this is the good news, and this is the gospel message, that he imputes to us what is only his. And he takes upon himself what is truly ours. And that by faith, and that because we believe and we put our trust in him, that the next age and the new life to come will be attained only by those who are found in Jesus Christ. And it's this faith, and it's when this faith is authentic to us that this new age is secured, and it will actually change everything about the way we live in this one. We continue in verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. You know, life after death, uh, the new age, this concept of the resurrection and living our lives towards it, it's not something that's, that's a new concept. It's something that God's people from all of human history, uh, they all look forward to. The Sadducees, they try and use Moses to discredit the idea of the resurrection. And so Jesus uses that same Moses to discredit them. And Jesus takes them back to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. And, and the bush there, it's on fire, but it's not being burned. And a voice comes from it to call Moses really to live his life, to be used by God, to redeem his people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses, you're going to be used by me. And what does God tell him from the bush? He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of your father when he was alive, or I used to be the God of Abraham at one point in his life, but he's dead now. Isaac's God as well, and also Jacob's. No, I am their God currently, and that tense is key, for in it, Jesus is claiming that these patriarchs are still living because there is life after the grave. And God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of those who are still alive. The Moses that the Sadducees supposedly loved, that same Moses believed in the resurrection and he believed in life after death. Now, how does this apply to us? If we fast forward and look at the book of Hebrews, we are given insight into the minds of these very patriarchs and into the minds of those who live by faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, this is a famous uh, chapter. And if you have time this afternoon, I, I do encourage you to read that chapter. But in chapter 11 and verse 8, we see the name Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. We see the name. And it says, by faith, 
Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was, received, was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out of, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I mean, do you hear that? Abraham left everything, all the comforts of home. He raised his children and grandchildren in temporary tents. Why? Because he believed in the heavenly country. He believed in the city designed by God himself, that that would be his future home, which would be enjoyed after this age. We find a similar commentary on Moses in verse 24 of the same chapter. By faith, when he was grown up, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than just treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Do you hear that? Moses grew up as royalty within a powerful kingdom at the time, a daughter of the Pharaoh, and he left it all. Why? Because this age ain't got nothing on the next one. Moses considered he waited out. The reproach of Christ is of greater treasure to me than anything that Egypt had to offer because I believe in the Messiah. And if my life is more characterized by reproach, it's still better than the things I used to enjoy in Egypt. I'll leave it all because I see him who is invisible. The Sadducees, they want to claim Moses, but Moses' entire life doesn't make any kind of sense without a resurrection and a thorough belief in life after death. And for the Christian believer, our lives don't make any kind of sense unless there is a resurrection. And the more our lives do begin to make sense without one, is more that we're living in Egypt rather than for that heavenly country. God is not ashamed to be called their God, verse 15. What does God think of those who believe in him? These are the ones, verse 38, of whom the world is not worthy. Now, what does this mean for us? The very beginning of Hebrews 11.1, 1, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And I think we're often uh, pretty nearsighted. We can only barely see beyond the tips of our noses. Uh, I don't know that I think enough about the age to come or that we do. And not just uh, enough in terms of the amount of time daily that we should contemplate heaven. But really enough in the sense of the heights as well. 
of how much it should occupy our minds, the quality of the life that is to come. I really and truly believe that so many of our issues would be smoothed out with more thoughts of the next world instead of this infatuation with this one. And one of the most important questions that we must answer in our minds and our hearts this morning and in the way that we choose to live our lives is do you really believe in life after death? Do you really believe it? And we must, brothers and sisters, believe in what God has asked us to believe. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, we ask for uh, genuine faith, uh, not, not the kind that just confesses alone with the mouth, but give us faith that produces a life that is lived in accordance with what we believe. Help us to live this life thinking about the next one all the time. Help us to sacrifice transient enjoyments for the sake of eternal ones. Uh, we know they're mutually exclusive to a great degree. But Father, would you show us who you are? Would you help us enjoy your love now to the degree that we're able so that we might anticipate the world of love which is coming in the new age? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.